American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. It might seem strange to those of you who are very interested in international affairs, international relations, uh, whether you live inside the United States or outside the United States, to hear that as late as the early 1890s, most people in the United States, and indeed many others around the world, thought of the United States as a relatively isolated country, a country that did not involve itself deeply in the affairs of the rest of the world. Now, it's true that the United States was closely linked by economic relationships, the movement of goods and of credit uh, across both of the big oceans that walled it from the rest of the world, the Atlantic and the Pacific. But at the same time, the U.S. was not involved uh, in the wars and political conflicts of Europe and much of the rest of the world. In the 50 years that followed 1890, all of that would change. The United States would become, by many measures, an empire. And certainly, certainly, the United States federal government, which had been heavily involved in promoting the development of capitalism within its claimed borders, that government would turn to using its power, its newfound power, to expand the reach of American capitalism around the world and start to reshape the global economy in a much more active way. The late 19th century is a time of incredible economic growth. In Europe and in North America, industrializing nations are transforming at an incredible rate. Millions of people are moving to the cities, leaving behind their rural lives and going to work in factories. They're moving across oceans and they're transforming their own lives, as well as the lives of the millions of consumers who are buying the new products that they make. Now, other lives are being transformed as well, as this is also an era of expanding European empire. In particular, we see this in Africa, where in a process called the Scramble for Africa, European nations literally divide up the African map, move in, and take over the societies that they find there, turn them into producers of raw materials and suppliers of labor. Watching from the shores of the United States, Americans have two sets of reactions to this process. One comes from the long-standing sense, the long-standing story that Americans have told themselves as the first post-colonial nation, that we are somehow different. We are not colonizers. We are not empire builders. Now, this might be belied by the fact that the U.S. has just conquered a large portion of the North American continent over the previous hundred years. But at the same time, that is the belief that many Americans have of themselves. On the other hand, there are other Americans who see the process of the world's resources being divided up and allocated, it seems, to just a few nations. And they don't want to see the United States be left behind. Now, all of these desires come to a head in the conflict with Spain and within the United States over the fact that Cuba, just a few miles from the shore of Florida, has been embroiled for the last three decades in a conflict with its imperial power, Spain. Many Cubans want to achieve independence from Spain. Spain doesn't want to let this profitable colony go. And the fact of this conflict hits Americans right in the sweet spot, as it were. It lines up both those uh, realists uh, and expansionists on the one hand 
and some of the isolationists on the other. Because the isolationists, the anti-colonialists, see Cuba as a, as a nation that's a lot like the United States back in 1776. It's trying to achieve independence. And so they can justify some sort of intervention in that way. And on the other hand, those who want to see the United States become a great power cannot fathom how the U.S. could allow another empire to hold a colony just off the coast of the United States. When the American battleship Maine, uh, visiting Havana, uh, blows up mysteriously in 1898, killing hundreds of sailors, there's a perfect pretext. And soon the United States has declared war against Spain and is planning an invasion of Cuba and other Spanish colonial, uh, colonial um, possessions. So the 1898 war between Spain and the United States is in many ways not a particularly interesting war. It's not a particularly big war on the scale of wars, uh, of all the wars that are fought by the U.S. in the 19th and 20th centuries. This is one of the smallest in terms of casualties. But the outcomes are pretty significant all the same, and not just because one of the heroes who emerges from the war is the Secretary of Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, who actually goes and enlists uh, as an officer, leads a famous charge in Cuba, and catapults himself to even greater national fame. Fame that he will use to become vice president and then ultimately president. And he'll be one of the, the major forces shaping the course of U.S. capitalism in the first two decades of the 20th century. But that's not the sole reason why the war is significant. It's significant in part because the U.S. gains huge quantities of territory, uh, overseas possessions, which provoke a debate. And that debate and how it comes out is really significant for the way that U.S. capitalism will develop into a truly global force, a force that is linked to the expansion and the growth of U.S. military and political power throughout the world over the next century. Now, when the war ends and the U.S. signs a treaty with Spain, the U.S. ends up with control over Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. Cuba will become independent, at least officially, although the U.S. will continue to intervene directly in its affairs. Puerto Rico will become a U.S. territory, which it remains today. And the Philippines will first be a U.S. colonial possession and ultimately become both independent and a close ally of the United States, closely linked by economic as well as political relationships. But the debate over how we get to that point is really significant because the sides at least seem to break down between those who want to keep those nations or those, those places, those societies at sort of an arm's length, and those that want to incorporate them closely, maybe even ultimately as states, into the United States itself. Those who want to incorporate uh, these nations uh, as states don't seem to win. But those that want to incorporate the societies of Cuba and Puerto Rico and the Philippines and ultimately other societies into the wider U.S. economic empire do actually win. Now there are dissenting voices. Uh, there are those who say the U.S. should hold no colonial possessions at all, should help these countries become independent and then let them go on, on their own way. These include figures like Jane Addams or Mark Twain. Those, those voices uh, ultimately do not win. They do not control and shape the future of the U.S. relationship to the rest of the world. It is those who, on the one hand, don't want to incorporate the Philippines or Puerto Rico 
or Cuba as states, but do want to incorporate them into the U.S. economic empire, those people do win the day. And in part they do so because there is broad agreement throughout most of the American elite, Mark Twain and Jane Addams aside, that the U.S. does need to expand as an economic force in the world. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Thank you.